This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready for the next part of our beautiful adventure? Well, I don't know how ready I am because I feel a little bit seen. The topic is foreign debt. (gasps) And I have to confess at this juncture that I do not possess good financial (laughs) hygiene. (laughs) How many foreign debts do you currently have, Katie? Oh, let's not go there. Let's not alert the authorities to this. But I put the blame on my 10-year-old self when my father tried to instruct me into the ways of keeping a balanced budget with my monthly allowance, which I do believe was $5 a month. And so he very optimistically suggested that I keep a ledger (laughs) of my outgoings from the $5 a month, and that would be on various candy bars and sweeties. (laughs) Of course, I ran through that MFR in uh, no time at all and quickly went into debt. Nothing ever added up. And thinking about my anxiety over this now, many decades later, I still break out into kind of a cold, clammy palm sweat. And uh, he saw how distressed I was, my dad, and would balance the budget every month. He would always top it up. To this day, I kind of think that there's going to be a a mythological (laughs) dad out there to kind of sort out my problems. So this episode is one that I'm approaching with fear, Tom. Uh, What was your single biggest outlay at this point, Katie? It would have to be. So this was at the time I was living in in Moscow in the American embassy. My dad was working there. And this was in in the height of the Cold War in the 70s. And we had what I considered to be contraband, which were hostess cupcakes. So these are just like crummy, mass marketed, made out of plastic, probably orange cupcakes that were rationed in the the U.S. Embassy commissary. And so that was uh, we were allowed two packets of those per week. And that was a, a big outlay for my sweetie allowance. Well, Katie, we're going to move beyond Hostess Cupcakes. Yes. Um, In today's episode, it's a big one. We've got a great guest. We have a great guest. Uh, He's returning expert. We squeezed him for all the juice that he had on Ronald Reagan. And if you want an entertaining gallop through that Cold War cowboy's life, you can check out the Reagan episode of We Didn't Start the Fire. But because Ewan Morgan is the author of the book, The Age of Deficits, Presidents and Unbalanced Budgets, from Jimmy Carter to George W. Bush, we've brought him back for another little squeeze on the subject of foreign debt. Welcome, Ewan. Good to be here. Okay, Ewan, so first things first, why is foreign debt tripping off Billy Joel's tongue at this point in the song? What's going on in the world? Okay, well, the 1980s is a crucial decade for changing composition of the public debt. Uh, The United States has always had a public debt, and uh, by and large, uh, it has kept that debt within certain limits, always manageable. In 1980, Ronald Reagan becomes president, and he's got an agenda. One, big-time reduction in taxes. Two, big-time expansion in defense spending to win the Cold War, and three big, big domestic cuts to compensate for 
the tax cuts and the defence expansion. Well, he delivered on the first two, but no way are the Democrats in Congress giving him what he wants on the third. So what happens is that the fiscal calculations go out the window. We have huge fiscal deficits each year in the United States, first $100 billion deficit in 1982, first $200 billion deficit in 1983. All this stalks up the aggregate public debt. And what we have in the 1980s is this explosion of public debt. Now, how does the United States pay its public debt? That's what I was going to ask because I I was having a hard enough time paying my cupcake debt when I was a child. There's a problem here, okay? If you pay for it entirely from domestic sources, you are draining savings that could otherwise be the seed corn for investment in the private economy. So what you have to do is attract borrowing from abroad, okay? So in the 1980s, uh, the United States moves from being the world's largest creditor nation to its largest debtor nation. Wow, that's from winner to loser right Um, there in the space of five years. Well, it depends what you call winning and losing. Uh The money comes in and they fund the public debt and Reagan can have his two-thirds of his agenda. Now, the problem is that if you are borrowing from abroad, it's going to have an effect on the value of your currency. And the big borrowers in the uh, 1980s were the Japanese. The Japanese began to buy U.S. treasuries. They didn't say, here, have a million bucks uh, in paper money. You know, you've got to buy U.S. treasuries. And what happened was that that inevitably pushed up the value of the dollar against the yen. If you're buying U.S. assets with Japanese currency, the value of the U.S. assets is going to be pumped up. And what happened was a very, very significant rise in the value of the dollar against the yen. Now, that's fine if you want to go on holiday to Japan as an American citizen. It's less good for you if you're an American worker. What it means is that Japanese imports become cheaper. So you have a consumer boom in the 1980s, which is fueled by cheap imports because of the value of the dollar. And no country benefits from this more than the Japanese who are selling cars, who are selling early computer models, who are selling televisions, who are selling record players, whatever you say, electronics. They are having a boom economy and the American consumer can't get enough of them. But what it means is that the poor American worker in traditional manufacturing is carrying the can. It helps to accelerate the deindustrialization of Heartland America. American automobiles and Detroit, it's a terrible year for them. American manufacturing is beginning to decline as a percentage of the workforce. That 1980s transition is a very painful one for some Americans. It's great if you're got in one of the high knowledge industries, you've got a college degree from a prestigious uh, university. 
not so good if you're a ordinary worker in the heartland, in the not huge cities, but the cities and small towns of the Midwest, you are having trouble. It sounds like an absolute sea change uh, and a readjustment of the American dream, Ewan. Also, Katie, I find this hugely encouraging because we have gone from what felt like quite a dry theoretical subject straight into the realms of Sony Walkmans, (laughs) which is a sweet spot for us. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing is I remember being a a young person in the 80s in America and, and having this sense that Japan were the enemy just because they were so successful and knew how to handle their money and basically were capitalizing on what was happening. So the fact that the Japanese imports were accessible and cheap didn't make them bad. It just made us kind of not so good at managing our our resources. And I imagine you and as well, because there's so many different directions we can go here. One of the things that interests me is that idea of people taking a moral stance on public debt. Oh, yeah, yeah. The idea that being in debt is bad. This is almost a Victorian thing. And when Margaret Thatcher was running a similar-ish economic program to Ronald Reagan when she was doing it over here, you always got that sense whether this was an unfair critique or not of the Grantham housewife trying to balance the books. Okay. Now, there's two threads running through American history on the debt. A, it's a necessary and good thing, and B, it's a vile and evil thing, okay? And like much in American history, the debate begins with the future rap star Alexander Hamilton, the first (laughs) Secretary of the Treasury, Mm. and the man who becomes the third President of the United States and who is the author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. For Hamilton, debt was a fundamental necessity to the new republic. America was born in debt, okay? How could it fight the Revolutionary War to free itself from Britain? Borrow. Borrow from the French, borrow from the Dutch, borrow from your own citizens. You've got to pay that back. So what Hamilton does when he becomes the first Treasury Secretary is that he nationalizes the debt owed by the federal government and the state governments and restores American creditworthiness by beginning to pay it off. And that means taxes, okay? Americans don't like taxes. Uh, Some of the taxes on uh, hard liquor provoked the Whiskey Tax Rebellion of 1794 in Pennsylvania. But that's another story. On the other side of the aisle is Thomas Jefferson. If you borrow... You are funding big government, and big government is antithetical to Republican values. We need to balance our annual budgets and reduce our debts to nothing so that we can become a virtuous republic. Debt was a mortal cancer, Mm. and thrift was the first and foremost virtue of republicanism. Okay, so where does Reagan stand on this debate when he comes in? Well, of course, uh, Reagan is a Jeffersonian in his rhetoric, but he's a Hamiltonian in practice, okay? Mm, Straddling Uh, both those lines. (laughs) Well, you you know, he makes a big deal about uh, the deficit and the debt. And uh, when he's running for office in 1980, he says, oh, we're grinding out money from the printing presses to pay for our debts. And that's why we have this horrible inflation, this runaway inflation 
inflation in the 1970s. This is a good line, but it's not true. There were many causes to the inflation of the 1970s, but America was not grinding out paper money through the Federal Reserve printing presses. It was borrowing. So, But it was borrowing at a time when the economy was also growing. So... Basically, the public debt in relationship to the size of GDP in 1980 was about the same as it was in 1880. Reagan comes along and, of course, he's talking about the need to cut government spending on domestic uh, programs, get government off people's backs by uh, cutting taxes, but also get the military the hardware it needs to fight the commies and win the Cold War. Well, each year, of course, because he can't deliver on all three parts of his uh, agenda, the deficit is going up. And as the annual deficit goes up, it adds to the size of the public debt. In the 1980s, the real measure of the public debt, this is always a difficult one to grasp. And uh, 50 years of teaching, I'm not sure my students got it. Okay, <laughs> Well, try but, it out on us. <laughs> Let's see how good you are at your all job. Right, all right. It's <laughs> not the dollar size of the debt that it is true indication. It's the size of the public debt in relationship to the size of the economy. Okay. In 1980, it's a, well, it's a manageable 25%. Okay. By 1989, when Ron is leaving the White House, it's 41% Mm -hmm. GDP. So it's a big, big, big jump. So in Katie's terms, and I'm almost certainly going to get this wrong, Ewan, Katie was getting $5 a week or a month? A month, a month. $5 a month. What mattered was not the fact that she was a dollar in debt to her dad, but that that was 20% of her... Well, it would have been more, even more. Yeah, he would have had to top it up. Uh, Yeah, probably 40%. Probably I'm as bad as Reagan. (laughs) Me and Reagan, we have a lot in common. Yeah, but... Everybody borrows, right? Mm -hmm. Most people borrow to have a mortgage, buy a car. You know, you just, unless you're very, very rich, like Billy Joel, you (laughs) you can't go in and give me that car and here's the money. Debt is part of the the way of life of all households. You're making me me feel much better about about my personal situation. So long as you keep it within levels that you can repay. In the case of the United States, it can always repay. It will not default. It's not like even a major South American nation like Argentina, which has uh, defaulted um, uh, before. This raises a point. Why is America always so successful in uh, digging itself out, whereas you see countries like Greece or Argentina just, you know, face planting in their own mess? Because the United States has a highly efficient tax collection system. Uh, It may have a low level of taxation, but uh, it has an effective way of of um, collecting taxes, and you can always rely on the American economy to deliver a certain level of prosperity whereby people pay their taxes, and so long as you have an efficient tax collection system, you're fine. In the news today, of course, is that the uh, Republican House is trying to prevent President Biden from expanding the number of IRS tax collectors. Yes. Well, guess why? Uh, (laughs) Yes. 
I have a question. Has there ever been a balanced budget in the United States? Is it hard to do? I mean... Oh, well, you've got to see a difference between a balanced budget and total elimination of the public debt. Okay. Okay. Only in one year in American history has the public debt been wholly eliminated. Okay, when was that? All right, this is a real nerd answer now. <laughs> okay, okay, good, because it was a nerd question. <laughs> okay, 1834. Ooh, this is a good pub quiz question. Yeah, pub it quiz is. Quiz. Uh, 1834, the United States had paid off the debts it had accrued to fight the war of 1812, and it was beginning to sell off Western public lands to people to go west, and the government had enough money to reduce its debt, but never, never thereafter. And was 1834 a great year for America? Was it worth it? Um, Well, it wasn't really worth it because uh, in a few years, the deficit began to rise and the debt began to rise because America was thrust into recession for whole set of reasons not related uh, to uh, public debt elimination. But by and large, until the end of World War II, deficits and the public debt were handmaidens either of depression or war. In depression, your economy shrinks, therefore your tax receipts decline, and you can't match your outgoings. And in war, and the United States has fought several wars, these were always periods of high increases in public debt. I'm interested in the fact that for something that is essentially math, the economic strategy of a country is so emotional. But what are the factors that foil sensible decisions? Because I, it seems like, okay, you should just do something that worked in the past and avoid something that didn't work in the past. But with, for instance, Reagan's trickle-down economics, we've seen it again with the momentary Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Why did she think that this disastrous budget that she presented would work when it didn't work the first time? Why do people make these decisions? Well, the budget may very well be a matter of figures and mathematical balancing of outgoings within comings. But the budget is also a highly political document. And uh, it reflects the agenda of the governing party. Uh, Now, the trouble in the United States, of course, is that there is rarely a governing party which controls both the presidency and the Congress. So you have continual standoffs. And this is reflected in the fact that there is a legal limit to the US public debt. Okay, that's fixed in law. And what happens when you get close to that legal limit, usually Congress will accede to a presidential request to raise the debt limit. Now, that will be the big weapon that um, the Republican House has against Joe Biden in the last two years of his presidency. You know, we're not going to raise the debt. Cut spending or do what you want, but we're not doing it. Whether it comes to that, but we've had several showdowns, you know, last chance saloon in the last 20 years, last 30 years. And it always affects the economy all over the world when uh, the threat of not raising the debt ceiling. Yeah, well, if 
the United States didn't raise the debt ceiling and couldn't pay its debts, we would have big trouble. Okay, big, big trouble. I hope I'm dead by the time it happens. Okay, <laughs> that's how big this trouble would be. <laughs> okay, so no more Ewan. <laughs> but on your question of uh, deficits for the moment, which is the difference between the annual intakes and outgoings of the federal government. There have been balanced budgets in recent years. Bill Clinton had four consecutive ones from 1997 to 2001. Last time that happened was in the 1920s. Okay? Wow, yay so Bill. It was like new labour here. You had to prove your virtue in relationship to the political culture that grew out of Reaganism. So he was he was being a tryhard just to prove his, uh, his cred. Yeah, but uh, he was lucky. Firstly, the Cold War ended. So he could reduce military spending easily. The other thing is, you've got the... Uh, dot-com boom on Wall Street, okay? Uh, This is before things went pear-shaped, but uh, Wall Street is the place to be now, and uh, new enterprises are launching, they're borrowing, and they're not making anything, but uh, everybody believes in them. Well, they've got to pay taxes, corporate taxes, capital gains taxes, uh, earned income, profits taxes, whatever, okay? And there's a harvest of money coming into the federal government. Whereas Reagan was running $200 billion deficits, Clinton manages to run a $200 billion surplus. I should say Clinton and the Republican Congress cooperated to deliver that. And in 2000, there was serious talk that uh, these surpluses would go on and be everlasting. And by about 2012, the public debt would be eliminated. Wow, that's wishful thinking. Well, it was. It was wishful thinking because the dot-com bubble burst in 2001. Mm. The United States went into the Afghan and Iraq wars, so military spending went up. George Bush um, deciding that the way to get the economy right was huge tax cuts. Uh, Reagan's uh, 1981 were the largest tax cut in American history. Bush's tax cuts of 2001 and 2003 were the second and third largest tax cuts in American history. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. 
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. So if we jump back to the Reagan era, because one of the things that came out of our previous chat about Reagan Ewan was that almost nothing sticks to him, whether it's the Iran-Contra for anything else. America seems to let him off the hook time and time again. So at this point, when the American debt is going up and up, and he himself is describing it as the greatest disappointment of his presidency. Although he didn't do that until later. When until, he was he's, like, until, he's, yeah, until he's moved on. <laughs> yeah, safely out of uh, the firing line. How does America react to him? Do they blame him or does he get away with it again? By and large, he gets away with it. And the reason he gets away with it is, uh, firstly, the American economy enjoys a boom in the middle Reagan years. That boom overshadows the problem of the deficit. And uh, the Democrats made a major strategic error in the presidential election of 1984. They said, uh, oh, we can't go on borrowing like this. And Walter Mondale, their candidate, said, I will have to raise taxes in order to reduce the deficit by one third in my first term as president. If you want to get elected as the president of the United States, don't say you're going to raise taxes. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, rookie error. Yeah, yeah. It's politics 101. Wandale was uh, sort of trying to warn people about the future. The trouble was for the Democrats, people were more interested in the here and now when things were looking really good. After the 1970s, inflation was down, uh, the economy was booming, thanks in part to borrowing, I have to say, and the deficit and the debt were manana problems. And of course, the second thing is Reagan's rhetoric. I'm not to blame for this. It's the Democrats in Congress. They will not cut spending in the way that I have advocated. Just remember this, he writes in his memoirs, the president cannot appropriate a single dollar for federal spending. It is Congress that appropriates money for federal spending. Also, here's the thing. I'm thinking about Reagan demonizing the beneficiaries of social programs as welfare queens, as he did throughout his political career. And yet now it seems that the U.S. was one big welfare queen. I wonder if, I mean, you're saying that people had a perception, citizens in America had a perception during this time of things being on the up and uh, the economy getting perhaps a little bit better. But was there any kind of psychological impact on Americans at the time with the awareness that the debt was ballooning and perhaps we weren't as strong in the eyes of, of the rest of the world? People didn't associate the deficit and the debt 
with hard economic times, okay? Uh, They associated it with uh, inflation, which they blamed on government spending, but uh, Reagan had cut taxes, so he's a good guy. And the other thing is that uh, interest rates would have the most effect on people's pocketbooks. Americans borrow, credit card usage is becoming big time in the 1980s. I remember going to the United States and thinking, this is a wonderful place. I just take out this piece of plastic, give it to somebody, and wow. Fortunately, I could pay my uh, uh, <laughs> dollar debts because, uh, lo and behold, thanks to Margaret Thatcher, the uh, pound when I was out there for a year teaching in 1979-80 was worth $2.40. So that was, that was good. Thank you, Margaret. <laughs> but it's, it's difficult uh, for Americans to link the two. And what most Americans thought was that uh, the deficits were causing very high interest rates, which had been a way of trying to control inflation in the early 1980s. And when the interest rates came down, they ceased worrying about the deficit. They thought, oh, well, it doesn't really make any difference uh, to our daily lives. Uh, We'll just get on with it. Uh, What are the 10 most important things that Americans thought about when they went into the voting booth? Some of them might say the deficit, but no. It's uh, cost of living, crime, it's uh, education, whether the country is safe. And somewhere down the list would be this strange thing, we should balance the budget. But it's not something that would be anywhere near the top of the list that would cause mass voting behavior to shift. Unless you're Billy Joel, who saw fit to put it as a lyric in his song. And that's made me wonder, Katie, because clearly he's talking about American foreign debt. But if you and Thatcher followed some of the same policies and the same direction as Reagan, what was happening in the UK at the same time? Well, what was happening in the UK was that Thatcher was doing something that Reagan had absolutely shied away from doing. Thatcher employed monetarist policy to bring about decline in inflation in the UK. And that was extremely painful. Uh, You know, this was a terrible time from about 1979 to 1982. Major unemployment. Unemployment was 1 million in 1979 in the UK, it was 3 million by 1982. And remember that Thatcher was elected on a slogan accusing Labour of mismanaging the economy, and the slogan was Britain's not working. Well, it was working even less uh, by 1982 because the the harshness of this monetary experiment, which drove up the value of the pound, this is why I was a beneficiary of it in the United States, and the result was that British exports found it very difficult to compete in the world. And what that means is that imports were cheaper because the pound was stronger. The decline of heavy industry, the northeast, the northwest, South Wales, central Scotland, these places are already in trouble because, you know, technological change was driving the economy. But the economic policy of the Thatcher administration hastened that acceleration. And was there 
a similar issue with foreign debt in the UK? Uh, we didn't borrow from abroad to the same extent as the United States. And uh, we didn't call it a balanced budget back in the 1980s. With typical British Reserve, we called it the public sector borrowing requirement, you oh. see, PSBR. And uh, that came into balance in 1987. And we, we, you know, we, we were just not spending at the same levels on defence. Thatcher, uh, of course, she's known as a tax cutter, but first thing she does as prime minister is put taxes up, consumption taxes. VAT, value-added tax, 7.5% in 1979, 15% in 1980. Okay, so get a lot of money every time Every time you buy a chewing gum or a chalk bar. There's a bit in there. And if you're buying a big ticket item, there's a lot. So you and I'll just have the listeners know, gestured very particularly towards me when he said <laughs> chocolate bar and chewing gum. So he knows his audience. <laughs> what did America learn from this period, Ewan? Did it just plow on regardless? We're not, we're not big learners, Tom. We're not big learners. I think there was a sense... At elite level, that things couldn't go on like this, okay? Uh, Segments of the Republican Party began to worry that the growth of the public debt was unsustainable. And the Democrats came to the conclusion the only way they were going to get back in power was to prove their fiscal responsibility because they'd been hammered. Even though Reagan oversaw the massive expansion of the public debt, the feeling in the country was that from the New Deal era of the 1930s to the 1970s, the Democrats as the party of government were largely responsible for the loss of control over public finances. Republicans always had a stick to beat the Democrats with. If the Democrats get back in to fund their spending, they will raise taxes. Helped re-elect Ronald Reagan in 1984. Helped elect George H.W. Bush in 1988. Remember the famous line, read my lips, no new taxes at the nomination uh, nomination address uh, in 1988. I do remember that, and yet he did raise taxes. He, he did, did raise taxes, <laughs> which really helped to bring about his defeat. Now, Bill Clinton becomes president, and he's not your typical Democrat. He's not a liberal New Deal Democrat. And Clinton takes a view, we've got to get control over the public finances. The trouble is, he also wants to do things, healthcare, welfare reform, education, expansion, etc. He loses control of the political situation in his first two years. And it helps to elect a Republican Congress, which promises massive tax cuts, massive spending cuts. Clinton then His defense strategy is to say, yes, we must cut taxes. Yes, we must cut spending, but not as much as the Republicans want. They now can't agree a budget. And you have a government shutdown in 1995. The Republicans blink first and they give Clinton what he wants because enough Republicans realize, hey, we're being blamed for the government shutdown. Social security checks aren't going out. People can't go to things like uh, the Washington Monument or the Jefferson Monument, you know. Clinton is so elated 
at this success that he loses control of his own libido. And uh, during this time, uh, the messenger service from Congress to uh, uh, the White House was um, put on hold. And so White House interns did that job. And one of those White House interns was, guess who? Monica Lewinsky. Correct. And uh, that's how she got closer to Clinton than she would have otherwise been had everything been working normally. Well, it's interesting because it seems that from what you're describing, all of this concern about the budget, about debt, money, it's kind of a smoke and mirrors tap dance. It's how pleasantly and how sunnily you convey your prospects to the American people. So whoever's in charge, as long as you can put a good spin on it, or if you're looking to unseat your predecessor, you're just going to say, they did a bad job, I'm going to do a good job. It doesn't even matter what you do once you get into power. It seems like people just do the opposite of what they were going to do. It doesn't really matter. It's all about how you sell it. Yes, I think that's true. Look, uh, people have enough difficulty in their own lives that uh, they're going to think twice about voting for someone who said, well, we're in a deep hole and the only way out of it is to inflict pain on everyone. Yeah, that's a major bummer, Ewan. I mean, I just want happy talk. (laughs) Well, do you remember uh, in Britain, uh, David Cameron, in terms of when he was prime minister, promised that there would be pain for everybody uh, in order (laughs) to get out of the uh, uh, financial problems caused by the uh, financial collapse of 2007 to 8. Some people had more pain than others. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, I think uh, that's fair. And, but it is an iron rule of politics. Uh, promise people better times. I'd say um, Boris Johnson in the UK, well, Liz Truss, and uh, now we've got Rishi Sunak, who has promised tough decisions. But of course, he has got the benefit of people remembering, hey, the one before him said everything in the garden was going to be fine. And then it wasn't. So maybe we've got to have tough times. That's right. Where's that magic money tree when you need it? <laughs> well, uh, talking of promises and Sunday uplands, you and you promised us those and you have delivered them. So on behalf of Katie and I, thank you very much. If people would like to know more on this topic, you've written the book to read in it. The Age of Deficits, Presidents and Unbalanced Budgets from Jimmy Carter to George W. Bush. <laughs> Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. 
Katie, you'd have thunk it. Foreign debt. Massively interesting. <laughs> I'm having post-traumatic stress disorder because I'm now also remembering, thanks to you and talking about the U.S. grinding out money, which was a reference to just firing up the Treasury printing press. When I was probably about, I don't know, eight or nine, I used to consume comic books a go-go. So I was reading Spider-Man. I was reading Archie. I was reading all manner of horror comics. And in the back of these American comics, I don't know if you ever looked at those when you were a kid, but they'd have these uh, little ads, little classified ads in the back. And they were things like, you know, blacklight posters, kind of hippie stickers. This would have been in the the 70s. X-ray glasses. X-ray glasses. Sea monkeys. Yes, sea monkeys. Sea monkeys. Okay. So amongst all of these tantalizing offerings was an ad for... A money printing press. What? Yes. And this makes me blanch to think about it, that at the age of whatever, eight or nine, even then I was hard up for cash and (laughs) looking for ways to execute some sort of side hustle. And so I thought, oh, perfect. I'll just send away a dollar twenty-five to have my own money printing press. Literally print money. Literally print money to buy all of the things that I thought were so essential. I don't know what they were. Probably candy. Possibly Playboy magazines. Because I had, at that age, at that tender age, I had taken to looking at my older brother's Playboy magazines. The long reads, yeah. The long reads, Mm. exactly. And uh, so, for $1.25, I did send away for this money printing press. Guess what? It, it wasn't really a, a money printing press. What? It was a magic trick. You, you secreted a $10 bill in there, and so you put in a $1 bill, and then you turn the crank, and then the $10 bill came out. So it was just like literally printing money. Can you describe the level of disappointment, Katie, in your heart? <laughs> I felt... Because I'm close to tears at this point. I, I felt so cheated, Tom. And... A little bit foolish. Probably not as foolish as I should have felt. (laughs) I mostly felt cheated and still hard up. This whole discussion with Ewan has opened up (laughs) a financial can of worms. It's obviously a, a deep issue that I have to explore in therapy. Well, if you are listening to this and you're flicking through either a comic book or Playboy and you see an advert for a money printing machine, Listen to Katie's warning. (laughs) Listen to my warning. The other thing that you should listen to in the meantime is our Reagan episode with Ewan. It was a banger, Katie. We really enjoyed it. Heaps more Reagan action from Ewan. Who knows? Yes, uh, you got to listen to that Reagan episode. And if you would like to get in touch with a story or with a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media where it's Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Katie, you want to know where we're going next week? Lay it on me, Tom. It's a big one. It's another emotive one. It's Homeless Effects. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. 
Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.